Well, one of the disadvantages I would say to being the owner of a company is, is that you are ultimately responsible for it all. When we were finishing up the Tesla job, Wall Street was speculating on how many Model Xs were gonna be delivered in the fourth quarter. Well, I knew the number. I knew exactly the number because at that point, all of the automation to make a very key component of that car was sitting in this shop right here. And we had made the first 2,000 cars here. So I knew the number <laughs> was gonna be no more than 2,000. Elon Musk is a very interesting guy, but he probably cost me more lost sleep than any other customer because you just don't know what's coming next. And so I read and listened to way more Elon Musk news than I should have during our early relationship with them. And they asked him, they said, how many Model X's are you gonna deliver in the fourth quarter? And he said, that depends upon the unluckiest supplier. And so I started talking to the guys that we were doing the project with. And I said, you know, have you ever interacted with, with Elon? And they're like, well, yeah, we see him at the factory. We've talked to him a little bit. And he says, well, does he get out and do these? He says, he only goes to the unluckiest suppliers. So I, unfortunately, uh, was not, never the unluckiest supplier. But I will tell you, when you um, develop automated equipment that now is <clears throat> in production around the globe. We're kind of like the British Empire. The sun never sets on an ISI robot at this point. Those things run 24 seven and sitting there trying to sleep at night thinking, I hope, I hope the stuff in China keeps running <laughs> so I don't get woken up in the middle of the night. So there's this pressure that exists that is the difficult part of this business to deal with. Welcome to season four of, of Note. This episode is one going to be a favorite of mine. I already know because of the the person, the innovator we're talking about. But two, um, probably the biggest news is a new face, a new voice, I should say, joining the podcast. And is a very significant one because it's actually employee number one of Scribble. She's always been a part of this since the beginning. She was there for the origin of it. Um, she had her hands on the Scribble brand, the name, what it turned into, um, the, the content strategy that is inclusive of this podcast. So to have Miss Kim Christ on as our new host today is fantastic. And I want to just take a moment and let her introduce herself. Thanks, Joseph. I'm really happy to be here and um, appreciate opening up with Bob Brown, who we get to talk about robotics with. Um, it's very relevant to my current role uh, as the director of SE Tech and Cybersecure SC at the South Carolina Council on Competitiveness, which that's all, that's we, yes, yeah, so we, we call it SE Competes for short. Okay. <laughs> and um, one of the things that we 
focus on is building the technology ecosystem of South Carolina. Yeah. So th that's why I'm like, this is a very appropriate episode to start on, right? For you. Absolutely. This is what you've been working on now for, for a, a long time too. Yes, it is. So I uh, started in the Office of Innovation at the South Carolina Department of Commerce. And Scribble was one of the very first projects that I started working on with Laura Corder, now Laura McIntosh. And from there, I was able to uh, utilize my technology background. So I am a technologist by trade, a network engineer, and was able to help conceptualize a statewide rollout of a technology training program called SE Codes, which is still working and bettering South Carolina today. And then from there, rolled into this statewide uh, overview role of just building the technology economy in general for South Carolina. And AI and robotics are one of the things we're focusing on as emerging technology. Yeah, so this this episode is super relevant to the conversation. I'm very excited to see what you have to say about uh, uh, all the things that Bob Brown talks about with respect to robotics, automation, and manufacturing in South Carolina. All right, so let's get into season four. Let's do it. I'm Bob Brown, and I'm the owner of Integrated Systems. Well, we're a uh, global supplier of robotically-based automation systems. I just tell everybody we, we make stuff that makes stuff. So today, we're at the world headquarters in a cornfield in uh, Darlington County, South Carolina, just outside of Hartsville. For a little company in the middle of a cornfield, we do a lot of work for uh, big companies you would recognize, like General Electric and Tesla and John Deere and Sunoco. Those are probably a few you might recognize. Well, when we started out, we were looked at in the world of integration as a welding integrator. So we uh, did a lot of custom machinery and then robotics that welded things together. We've done uh, a lot of different car parts, industrial parts, MRI magnets, that kind of stuff. Once we got into robotics, we found out that we also had an aptitude to do other things with robotics. So we got into material handling and packing and palletizing and all those other things. So it's just kind of been one project after another that there's enough core competency from one that you have and you know enough confidence to take the risk of the next one. I think everyone has watched enough how it's made to understand what a production facility looks like. And you probably have a pretty good mental image of a robotic arm. The question isn't really, can these robotic systems do the job? But why should they? We get invited into plants for three really good reasons. We do things that are dull, dirty, or dangerous. So on the dull side, you know, any kind of repetitive, mind-numbing task, I think one could argue that removing people from that and allowing them to, to better use their talents is, is a good thing. Certainly removing people from dangerous situations is, is another thing that we do. And, you know, there's been a shortage of skilled labor in, in the United States, especially. It's technical education in a lot of ways has fallen out of favor. And so as that's happened, we've um, been replacing the unavailable skilled labor and welding is a really good example. People quit wanting to be welders, you know, decades ago. But now we're at a point where it's getting more and more difficult, especially with the pandemic, to find people to do just about any task. Why companies call us is changing a little bit. It's actually starting to get to the point where instead of trying to come in and add efficiency to their operation, it's like you're not going to make this product if you don't automate it because you can't get the labor to do it. So if speed and efficiency are the name of the game, 
How quickly can Bob spin up a new project and get parts in people's hands? On average, I would say that from identifying the project to actually getting a purchase order, say to begin the project, that can be anywhere from one to three years. Now, my fastest is about four days, and that's kind of how we got married up with Tesla. So they called on a Monday and said, we need to buy some robots for our Model X production. And we said, well, uh, when would you like to meet? You know, we'll look at the calendar and see what they look like. They said, tomorrow would be great. So sure enough, we went and visited the next day on Tuesday. And after we saw what they needed done, we thought, hey, this is something we can do. And so we said, um, when would you like a proposal back? You know, it generally takes us a few weeks to do that. They said, well, tomorrow would be great. Well, we didn't hit Wednesday. We actually gave them a, a, a budgetary quote on Thursday. And then I thought that I would turn the tables on them. I said, well, when are you thinking about writing a purchase order? Because tomorrow would be great. And sure enough, tomorrow they wrote a purchase order. So I didn't know them on Monday and had a substantial order for them on Friday. And I just was amazed at how quickly they were able on their end to have the confidence to, uh, to write such a order to somebody they didn't even know. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But there's more to integrated systems that sets it apart from other automation companies than receptiveness and responsiveness to projects like Tesla. Yeah, we do have a fair number of, of competitors. Um, we rep several different robot brands, and most of those brands have an annual conference for companies like ours. We interact with our competitors, if you will, quite often. And I would say that there's kind of breaks down into two camps in the automation company landscape. There's a few companies out there that look at the world like there's abundance. There's, there's so much to automate in this world and we all feel like the world will be better for it. Um, and then you've got a lot of, the majority of the companies I would say are kind of scarcity model people, which I think a lot of the world is scarcity model. It's not being critical of them. That's just the way the most of the world is. Most people are like, there's only so much good stuff and I got to go get my little bit of good stuff. But we've really tried to align ourselves with the people that look at it from an abundance perspective. And so we, we give away as many good ideas as we can. And so our, our way of going about business is kind of the idea that ultimately, if we always do what's in the best interest of our customer, even if that means giving our customer to one of our competitors that's better at something than we are, that ultimately that will be good for us. We'll either get that customer back for another project or that customer will tell somebody, hey, you ought to go talk to these guys integrate systems. They, they could have done the job and done a not as good a job, but they sent us in the right spot. So go, go talk to them. So I would say if we have a, a culture as it relates to customers and building business and that kind of stuff, that's kind of how we go about it. So I, I remember when we were driving to uh, Bob's facility and it, it, I had some flashbacks, interestingly, to, you know, the first year and the very first interview we did, had done because uh, at the time that we were covering um, that person, she, she, we were driving in and it was in a subdivision. I didn't realize we were going to her garage. Um, and so in this, so we're driving up, we're going to interview Bob Brown and we happen upon a, uh, a small regional airport. And I'm thinking, oh, wait a minute, uh, maybe he's in the hangar. I don't know what to expect here. This will be interesting. Um, you know, when we take our final right and then we finally end up in his facility. Um, 
And then at that point, you never you never know what to expect. It, it looks like a manufacturing facility. I've been to so many of them. In this particular case, you walk in and you've got you know a wall of quotes, probably a hundred quotes on there. You've got all these flags of different countries hanging from the ceiling. Um, and then you've just got this endless sea of, of robot arms um, and bits and pieces of, of, of integrated robotic systems in there. Um, and it looked a little bit like um, not a, a, an organized mad scientist at work. And then it was so, it was so awesome. We get into the conversation, Kim, with him. But the obvious thing that stood out for me that was unexpected was when he started to talk about the role they were playing with Tesla and electric vehicles and in that case the rollout of um, of, of of early model threes and and x's um which and 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 once he started to talk about that it was it just dawned on me this is such an interesting story and the fact of the matter is here is a manufacturer in darlington in the middle of a cornfield who is contributing to the ev movement globally and i'd be like what do you think about that i mean the fact that he had that role or has that role play as a supplier for tesla well, I think uh, a lot of that boils down to the fact that Bob's organization was able to cut through red tape, right? So when Tesla's looking for a supplier, they're looking for someone who can be nimble. They asked him to produce a contract or a quote within a very quick turnaround that a lot of larger companies wouldn't be able to do. And so... What it's like we, a week, right? They needed to get going in a week. Yeah, well, they asked for like the next day. And Bob says, well, how's, how about two days? And the fact <laughs> that Tesla could have that internal process themselves, they're looking for those suppliers that can react and can match that, you know, speed and efficiency. And the fact that Bob could do that, I think probably gave him an advantage Obviously, the technology he's creating is, you know, what Tesla is buying. But perhaps if if his turnaround was, say, two months to get that RFP um, proposal out, maybe Tesla would have moved on. Maybe they would have chosen someone else. So I definitely think that the fact that he has an organization that can be nimble, that can cut through red tape and get those communications, those those responses out more quickly makes him have an advantage. It's about those thought leaders, wherever they are, and we have a lot of them in South Carolina, it's the fact that they can lead their company, they can lead the conceptualization of these types of machines, and it doesn't have to be in a hotbed place. Robots are often talked about as being the future, but really when you look around South Carolina, especially the fact that we are a manufacturing state, you see that we're already there. Uh, advanced manufacturing is where we're at in South Carolina, and that's done by robots. That's done through automation and AI. And so when you walk into a facility in South Carolina that is a manufacturing facility, you're going to see a pristine environment. It's not going to look like, you know, those pictures of the old days where it's dirty and, you know, it's dangerous because the machines, like Bob says, are doing that dirty and dangerous and repetitive work. So you're going to walk into an environment that's clean, that's high tech, and the employees are the ones that are managing that technology, which is really great because we think a lot about 
robots taking over the world and taking over our jobs. And that isn't actually what's happening. What I'm seeing is that robots are advancing our career opportunities to be more high tech, higher wage. And that's a good thing for our state. Yeah, and I think to your point of, of Bob and even in the Tesla story, um, we, we talk so much about the automation and the robotics, but it's really a human conversation that's that's happening there and that we're talking about in terms of how that innovation is being driven forward, right? So yeah, to your point, if the machines are doing the dull, dangerous and dirty work, it's actually freeing up humans to think about where things could go next and how to accomplish that with those tools. Yeah, absolutely. He was allowed to take this path through being open-minded to opportunities, to being a helper. Every, every story he told really demonstrated how he had an open mind. He was inquisitive. He inquired about what's happening here. How can I help you? And that led to this mindset of innovation, of being able to say, hmm, maybe we can do this better. When we look at his story of how he was like, wait, I'm not a computer engineer, but then he revolutionized the way that this company did, yep. you know, their process uh, in programming. So what we're looking at, you said, is a human interest story, really, because it's about Bob's leadership style, his inquiry, his curiosity that allows him to go down this path of creating robots that are bringing companies like Tesla into a new generation of, of process. You mentioned him doing some early interesting things with uh, UI and computer engineering. And I think he tells his story best. He actually got his start way early and it's so fun to hear. My dad was a banker and um, you know, bankers are pretty conservative by nature. So I had a pretty conservative upbringing but but my dad um also had uh he, he, he's also good at you know managing money being a banker and so one of the things we did as a family is is my dad would would build a house and we'd all move in the house for two or three years and then we'd sell the house and we'd build another house and so he supplemented his income as a banker by building houses so i just got to firsthand see that you know we built things and doing things and you could do it after work and it wasn't some mystery you know, it was you know you could actually create things. And so my dad had a really good set of tools for building houses. And so when I was about 14, I started making things in the garage and my grandmother had a uh, flower shop. And so one of the things I first started making was uh, was signs with people's last names on them that they like to hang outside on their decks and porches and stuff like that. So you could buy a sign. I charged $11 for the sign as a base cost and $1.50 a letter. And my grandmother would sell them and then I'd make them and then deliver them back to the shop. And then then she came to me and said, uh, hey, I think people would buy picnic tables. You think you can build picnic tables? And I said, yeah, I think I can build them. So I made a round one and a rectangle one and we put them up and they started selling. And then the city that I grew up in, it wasn't a city, it was a town, Cottonwood, they, they decided they needed a bunch of picnic tables for the local pool. So I got a order for I think 14 picnic tables when I was 14 years old. So I like to tell everybody I was a government contractor <laughs> at 14. So that's kind of how it all started. I just started making things. And then I, when I graduated high school, I went off and got a degree in industrial engineering at Northern Arizona University. And my intent was to uh, move back to my hometown and start a construction company. And uh, was well on my way to doing that. And I, I, I did fairly well in my college studies. And so the 
the person who was the head of the de industrial engineering department, he says, look, I know you're not looking for a job. He said, but it'd be helpful to the department if you would just go do some interviews so they could kind of see what our graduates look like. And I said, okay. So I took the course syllabus, if you will, or the outline of all the uh, classes that we had in our, in our major. I didn't even take a resume. I just went with that. And I sat down with this guy that was the vice president of this construction company and handed him this. He's like, you don't have a resume? I'm like, well, I'm not here for a job interview. I'm here to convince you that you should hire more NAU graduates. And uh, he's like, well, okay. So we went through the um, syllabus and I told him what we did in each class. And the interesting thing about it was, is the guy who had, who had um, started the program that I was in used to work for this company. So in all of our classes, all of our class material was actually pilfered materials from this construction company. So I understand their purchasing system and their, and their uh, RFI tracking, their change order system, their scheduling and all this stuff just because I had all these classes. And so I started explaining to him how all their, their stuff worked in their company. So a couple of weeks goes by and I get a call from this guy and he says, hey, look, I know you don't want a job, but I've got an interesting job you might consider. And I said, well, what is it? He says, I want you to design computer software. I was like, well, you do know I was an industrial engineer, not a computer engineer. He goes, yeah, exactly, I know that. He says, we, we have computer engineers. What we need is an industrial engineer to design the software and the interface to the software. And, I, and he says, and you seem to know our processes pretty well, <laughs> so maybe you could come do that. And so I did. And I went down and started designing and they were actually designing software using the IBM platform. So this is the you know, late 80s, if you will. <clears throat> and I had gotten hooked on the Macintosh product. So I was kind of an Apple guy from early on. And so I started designing these interfaces that look like a Macintosh for the IBM. And these guys are like, what, what is all this stuff? So I one day brought in my little Apple computer and I said, this is how a computer ought to work. Not, not DOS prompt, you know, hack, backslash colon, that's crazy. And so we ended up writing Windows-based stuff for an IBM before there was a Windows for internal use. And after I finished with that, I, I went back to work and uh, moved to Florida and became a contractor. During my first week uh, down there, I, I've always had, a, I've had an airplane since college, just something I've loved doing. And so we flew to an air show and uh, during the air show, unfortunately they had an accident at the air show. And so they closed the airport. And so everybody that had flown in was stuck and then I was walking to the, to the restroom and I walked by an airplane and there's these guys huddled around this airplane and they're looking at charts and books and stuff. And I just waved at him. I said, hey, I like your airplane. And uh, this guy looks up and he goes, you ever flown one of these things? And I was like, well, as a matter of fact, my father-in-law has that exact model and I've got a couple hundred hours in there. He says, well, I just bought this thing and bought it from a guy in Texas and we flew down here from South Carolina. And this thing's supposed to burn 10 gallons an hour. And we burned 13 gallons an hour coming down here. And I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with it. So I asked him a few questions and I convinced him that he was indeed burning 10 gallons an hour, but he was pumping three gallons an hour overboard due to mismanagement of the fuel system. So straightened him out on that, changed business cards, said, have a nice day. And then a few weeks later, I got a call from one of the other guys that was, that was on the trip with him. And uh, long story short, he invited me to go on a, to an air show in Oshkosh, Wisconsin with him. And they said, well, why don't you fly up to South Carolina? You can spend the night and then we'll all leave together the next morning. I didn't know these guys, but this 15 minute deal. And so I flew and I landed here in Hartsville and we went out to this guy, George's house. He's the guy that didn't know how to run his airplane 
fuel system and uh, we went out to go swimming in the pond. And so we start walking down to the pond and there's a barn and outside the barn, there's a machine. And I was like, what's, what's that? And he says, that's a machine I'm building. I'm like, you build machines in your barn? He said, yeah. And I said, well, who's your machine? Who's the machine for? He said, oh, that one's for General Electric. I was like, in your barn, you're building a machine for General Electric. Said, that's cool. So we went swimming and came back and a couple of years later, I come back for a dove shoot or something like that and walk back by the barn and another machine. Who's that machine for? Oh, that one's for Stanley Tool. I was like, in your barn, really? And so I just got really intrigued. I never really thought about somebody needed to build machines. And so we were nearing our end of our kind of a commitment uh, down in Orlando. And we thought, well, let's just move back to Arizona. And so we got a call from one of those guys that was on that trip and said, hey, I know your uh, wife's time in the Navy is about to draw to an end and you guys are probably trying to decide what you're gonna do next and I think you should move to Hartsville. And your wife ought to go to work at the nuclear plant and you ought to buy half of George's business because he's a wonderful engineer, but he struggles on the business side of things. And so thought about it and said, okay, move to Hartsville. Bought half of an automation company that I knew absolutely nothing about automation. But I found when I got here, it was very similar uh, to construction. I mean, there's a schedule, there's a budget, there's, you know, specifications. So the management of the company and management of the process, almost identical to construction. And so that's what we did. And uh, so we've been doing it ever since. I was able to go back and re-listen to a lot of the Scribble podcasts as I was preparing to host this season. And it really reminded me of the fantastic content that it's been there over the last four seasons. So if you're like me and you want to refresh on that, those podcasts are still available for you to go and listen to. That's on scribblesc.com slash podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever it is you get your podcast. As Bob mentioned earlier, since taking over the company, he's grown the business by putting customers first and developing new offerings by expanding upon core competencies and taking a bit of risk. Yet, one of the biggest growth factors that we were able to experience firsthand was the culture of the company. In fact, outside of the building, there is a large sign that reads Area 52. We had another customer that wanted to develop kind of a long-term partnership with us. And they asked us, would we be willing to fire a bunch of our existing customers if they would guarantee us a certain amount of business over the next decade or so? And we thought that was an interesting idea. And the other challenge that they said to us is they said, you know, we're a very large company and large companies like ours are really geared toward driving efficiencies, not always that good at driving innovation. And so we would like to rekindle that innovation in our company and we want you to do that. And I'm like, yeah, our 25 people are really going to change the culture of your 21,000, but we'll give it a shot. So I was very confident that we could build the machinery that they needed, the equipment they needed, all that kind of stuff. But I really was losing sleep over the change in the culture thing. I mean, we obviously have a culture of innovation, but how do you project that onto somebody else's company is, uh, I think, a pretty tall task. And so I thought and thought and thought about how we might build intrigue around the partnership. And so I came up with this idea of 
keeping it a secret. So I uh, went to Dylan and I said, Dylan, I need you to make me up an envelope and I want you to put Area 52 on it and I want it to say confidential, top secret. He's like, okay, what are you gonna put in it? I'm like, absolutely nothing. So I took my empty envelope and I stuck it in my pile of papers to go back and talk to this company. And as we were going through the final negotiations of everything, I flipped through my pile of papers a few times and there was the top secret envelope. So we got down, the final question was, well, how are you gonna change our culture, Bob? And I was like, we're gonna keep it a secret. And he said, um, well, that may be the stupidest thing you've said in this whole negotiation. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, you know anything about my pile of papers here? They said, you mean the top secret envelope? And I said, exactly. I said, ever since you've seen it, you wondering what the heck's in that darn envelope, haven't you? And so building that intrigue and your guys are gonna come and they're gonna do projects and there's gonna be a big list of people that wanna do projects. And so there's gonna be people that wanna get in the door and people are gonna get discouraged because we can't get to them in time and that kind of stuff. But we want them to know that when they finally do, they get to do an Area 52 project, that it's just that cool, that it's worth waiting for. So that was kind of the idea behind the Area 52 thing. Bringing new employees into your culture can be a tricky balance because if your culture isn't reinforced as you grow, it could slip away. One of the interesting things uh, that you might have seen when you came in the building is we've got a, a wall full of quotes. None of them have the name on them of people who said the quote, so that's kind of the interesting thing about them. Some of them are obviously famous quotes that you probably would have recognized, but a lot of those are things that people have said to us, either customers have said along the way, or vendors have said along the way, or our employees have said along the way. And I won't say that any of the things on the wall are what I consider to be gospel, but in the middle of our wall, there's a, there's a big orange piece, and it's some lyrics from a song called Some of It. And it basically represents what's on the wall, that these aren't gospel, but there's something to some of this stuff. And Bob's favorite quote up on the wall? talking to my banker, my banker, and he said, Bob, the one thing you got to remember is the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And I think that's one of my favorites is that, we you know, our main thing has a lot of variety to it, but our main thing is building equipment for companies. It's one of the things I think that we particularly pay attention to is keeping the main thing the main thing. So there's a couple ways you kind of get in the door at Integrated Systems. I shouldn't say there's a couple of ways. There's only one way, and that's almost that you have to be sponsored. So we, we rarely hire somebody we don't already know in some other capacity. And most of those come from our employees. They bring a friend, and then we get to know that person. But ever since we built the quote wall, part of the interview process has been, go read the quote wall, and if you don't see something in about 90% of the things that's on it, this probably isn't the place that you're going to feel comfortable. So... From that perspective, there's, I mean, I don't feel like we have this underlying thing. There's, well, there's one thing that I do feel like we do better than a lot of our competition, and that is our will to finish a project. And what generally happens, and it's kind of like if you've ever maybe even hired a contractor at your house, you know, you get all done with your house and there's the punch list items, right? And by the time you're trying to do the punch list, you're mad at the contractor, the contractor's mad at you, you're 90 days late, you're over budget, it's just a mess. And sometimes the punch list just doesn't get done because they're out of money, you're out of time, everybody's out of patience. And then you turn around sometime later and you go hire another contractor, you find a little more money to pay somebody else to come finish the punch list. A lot of that happens in automation. And we are always the company that's been willing to walk into the mess and finish the last 10% for somebody else. Somebody's made a multi-million dollar 
investment that doesn't work. And for just another $50,000 and a little bit of care and attention, they'll get the value out of that. And so a lot of our customers have come to us in that way. We call it, we got a customer in the ditch and we're always willing to go help a customer in the ditch. And I think most people run away from other people's problems. We kind of run toward them. But as we all know, there's more to hiring than a referral and a glance at the quote wall. So we try to identify somebody who's, who's got a, a skill set that we can immediately use. So for instance, uh, let's say we hire somebody who has a two-year degree in welding out of the technical school. Well, we know we have a little bit of welding that we do every day here, and so there's, there's a place for you to start. But what we have developed over the years is we sat down and we made a list. And up on the quote wall, it says there's 108 skills. I think somebody edited the list and now it's up to like 122. But we've, we've developed a list of all of the skills and all of the processes and things that we do in this building to make a machine. And we basically encourage all of our employees to learn as many of the 108 as possible. We don't have an annual review process at Integrated Systems. So like we don't do the whole every year you gotta fill out the stuff and all the paperwork. Basically we have a policy where you can get a review on demand. <clears throat> so all you gotta do is you've gotta come to me and say, Bob, I'd like to talk to you about my salary. Okay. And everybody knows you better bring the list of 108 things and that there better be more of the 108 things in the checkbox category this year than there was last year. Because my philosophy is I'm not gonna pay you more this year to do the same job you were doing last year. So we really encourage people to always try to grab the next thing and do the next thing. We, we give them the, the time to do it. We give them the education to do it. And a lot of the education is we throw you in the deep end of the pool. We just give you the responsibility and having the responsibility forces you to acquire the skill. And that's whether you ask a friend, you watch YouTube, or you ask me, you know, how do I do this? And um, that's, that's really how we do it. And what we've done over the years is so we have very few people that I would say have a degree that they're using in the field that the degree is in. Most of our people here have a two-year technical degree. Um, and, you know, I've got a marine biologist that worked for me, you know, a guy who's a forestry majors program in robots now. So really what we look for is somebody with a skill, somebody who's smart and who is willing to learn something new. You know, Bob had a lot to say, Kim, about hiring, you know, his approach to hiring and building culture. Um, and uh, that, that, that was, uh, that's probably an outlier, uh, as well for a lot of the innovators that we have. And normally we'll talk about approaches to who they're looking for. And it's usually the same, but Bob was very, uh, Bob was very specific. I think in some of the, uh, pearls of wisdom that he, he, he laid out, was there anything that you, that stood out to you? Well, I think, you know, one of the things Bob talks a lot about is that he's looking for candidates with a two-year technical degree. And a lot of times we think of getting higher education as mandatory for a four-year degree to work in this type of field. Mm -hmm. And two-year technical degrees have fallen a little bit out of favor, although South Carolina has one of the best technical college systems in the nation. So I really like that he demonstrates that he finds students and then helps them grow professionally 
once he onboards them, that he's looking for an aptitude. He's really looking for a mindset, someone who can understand what his customer needs are and be a good cultural fit for his team. And, and that's something that isn't necessarily educated into a person. That's a, a mindset that either you have or you don't. How, how do you see that going over time? Are you guys continuing to make investments in strengthening um, technical education so that you know the needs of, of employers are met? Well, absolutely. We're invested in two and four year and, and beyond degrees, right? We, we want all of our higher learning institutions to succeed and, and produce students that have the potential to stay and live and work in, in South Carolina. And one of the things that we've done uh, is a collaboration between SC Competes and the Department of Commerce as we've purchased a Boston Dynamics Spot robot. And this robot will help us to show our students what it looks like to operate a robot. You know, Spot is very cute because he looks like a dog, um, but he's also highly technically complex and the capabilities that a robot like Spot has are pretty amazing. So our plan is, is to help our students to be able to see this in action through the use of Spot in our education system. We've also been able to help promote some AI and robotics courses with some of our four-year institutions. For example, in Charleston, Trident Technical College and the College of Charleston have paired together to make a, an AI robotics course. Uh, we have industry and higher education collaborations happening up in Rock Hill with Winthrop and Delta Bravo. And so all of this is to help to give those students the opportunity to see and learn what it would be like and be prepared to go in these jobs that, again, are, you know, really great career trajectories with high paying, you know, opportunities. And so in, in you, it sounds like you're kind of ensuring that they have that the, the, the foundation, the fundamentals in place so that when they go to a place, um, uh, you know, like like at integrated systems um, where he's you know, his his hashtag is invent every day that they do have those skills. They are, they have been exposed to the platforms. They have been exposed to um, the infrastructure, but then they can come in there and then be open to how the culture is being built and they can sort of respond to that based on how the employer sees to train them in, in their own um, process and system as well, correct? Well, absolutely. And, and I think the first step there is, you know, representation, seeing something, seeing, hey, I can, I can actually do this and I can live in a rural part of South Carolina. And if they can see it, they can be it, right? That old yeah. quote. So I think that that builds the curiosity and the type of mindset that Bob is going to be looking for for potential employees. You mentioned quote, and uh, you know that was one of the things that really stood out to me in his, his space, also with with team building and culture. You know, he's got his quote wall. I think he had more than a hundred quotes on there, um, and his approach to, to to growing that part of his 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 cult his culture um, was also very interesting to me. I I found it quite inspirational. Um, I'm not sure if you saw some of the images from that quote wall. Um, were there any that stood out to you as your favorite? I think about. Good enough is 
not enough. Good enough ain't enough yep. is the quote on the wall. And really, I think that speaks to always wanting to improve process, always being curious about how can I do it better? And I think for me, you know, that resonated because I'm always looking for improvement. Like, what can I do to to better our state? What kind of processes could be put in place to make things better? But it also speaks to that ability to fail forward, we talk about, yeah. um, to be able to try new things and not be afraid to keep working towards something. And Bob talks a lot about that in his organization as well, how he really encourages that creativity without the penalization of failing. It's very interesting that Bob uses that wall really as, in a way, a litmus test for yes. how how open you are to being okay with failure yourself and, and then picking yourself back up and trying again. So, Well, I think he demonstrates that too when he's talking about having to integrate culture into a larger organization. Mm-hmm. And he does something interesting, right? He yeah. creates this campaign <laughs> where... Top secret one. It's top secret. So who's going to gravitate towards that? Well, of course, the most curious, right? That's right. The people who want to figure it out, who are who are just dying to know. Let me get in that envelope. And so, everything that we see him doing and building culture is to that end, is to create excellence through curiosity. Mm -hmm. It's so important, Kim. that, That even I mean, remember early on when when Scribble wasn't even Scribble. And, and we were looking for names and we were trying to figure out some things. We had an early concept for, um, I think it either was a, 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 an event or maybe it was the podcast or it pr- frankly could have been the entire program, right? Do you remember that? Yeah, the Failing Up series. We had talked about having our innovators talk about their greatest failures and what that led to. Because we know that without failure, there's not going to be that eventual success. And so it was a celebration of how failure is ultimately what is the catalyst for a lot of innovators, a lot of entrepreneurs in their in their success. Bob talks about how he has managed to avoid a catastrophic failure, and that's by embracing those small failures along the way. Well, one of the things that I really, really try to focus on, I don't know how good I am at it because I'm not on the, the receiving end of comments that I make or things like that. But what I intentionally try to do is I do not punish for a failure that was made out of honest effort. If somebody doesn't honestly try and fails, you gotta have a hard conversation about that. But if somebody really tried and failed, that's your quickest way out of the innovation field is to start punishing that. And I think some of the bigger companies become less and less tolerant of mistakes. You know, they've got this mentality that failure is not an option. I don't agree with that at all. Failure is not the goal, but failure is always an option. And failure is almost always on the path to ultimate success. So if you don't think you're going to go through something that doesn't go right to ultimately get where you're going, I think you're looking at it incredibly wrong. And I think that's the part why people don't innovate more, is they look at that path and they go, well, what happens if this? What happens if that? And they don't go. And so that's kind of my job is to 
remove those barriers. So I told you my dad was a banker. He was conservative. And one of the pieces of advice that he gave me was he was like, Bob, you know, you can do a lot of things in your life. He said, just don't put the dominoes too close to each other on the table. And so that's what we have done here. We have never taken a project that we bet the company on. So I, I honestly would say we do not have any spectacular failures. Um, we've had failures, but they've all been one domino failures. They've all, the dominoes fallen down and nothing else has happened. And so from that perspective, we, come up, we overcome little failures every day to avoid big ones. I think that's how we go about it. Failure is a crucial part of innovation, but there's a lot more to innovating. Bob takes an approach he refers to as cataloging. Now there's true innovation, which is when you think something up that has never existed before, right? But I would say most of our innovation is more iteration. Quite honestly, over the years, what we've been is very keen observers to the world around us. You know, when we get invited into a plant, we're there to see a specific thing and kind of solve a specific problem. But as you go to do that, you walk by, you know, 2,000 other things that are happening in this plant. And, you know, a lot of it's benign, but every now and then you go, oh, look how they're doing that. That's a good idea. And you just kind of collect those things over time and you build this catalog in your mind of solutions to problems you don't know you have yet. So after a lot of years of doing that, and that's really my first partner, George, he had been doing this for a long time and he's the one that had the catalog. And since then I've acquired the catalog and the people that work with me have acquired the catalog. And so it's really just a, a way of understanding kind of what is available uh, in the equipment world, you know, there's only a few ways we've invented as people to move things. There's only a certain number of sources of power, of energy. Uh, there's only certain ways you can control those. There's just a catalog that I feel like we just grab little pieces of things we've seen and then combine them in a new and unique way. And that's most of our innovation. Along the way, we've invented things that are Nobody's ever invented before, but it's always kind of a part. It's not, not really what makes the difference in, in, in most cases. Bob openly admits that integrated systems process to most things is just different. For the first uh, 20 years that I ran this business, I mistakenly thought that everybody was an entrepreneur at heart. I mean, it's just how I thought. So I thought everybody else thought like that too. And um, once I realized that nobody's an entrepreneur, <laughs> Then I kind of started to understand um, how to deal with those challenges. And so uh, one of the things I do in this kind of our giving back campaign is I'm on the governor's school for science and math board. And we just hired a new president. And one of the candidates gave me something that will eventually make the quote wall. And his quote was, all those that are able aren't necessarily willing and all those willing aren't necessarily able. And so those are really the two impediments that I face here in developing the culture and developing people. Because you've got people who, I mean, I know you can do this, but they just don't want to. And then you get the other issue where there's somebody who's like, I really want to do that, but they just might not think in ones and zeros or whatever that particular skill is. And so that is where the art of it comes in, is encouraging people to do the things that you think they're going to have an aptitude in 
and then kind of discouraging from the places where they have a willingness to go, but not necessarily an aptitude. Entrepreneurs face many challenges beyond hiring and team building. So how does Bob handle some of the bigger problems like stress? It's been, you know, a wonderful life for me. It's not the low stress way to go through life. I mean, you're, you're out there, you know, there's 25 people here, but only one guy bets his house every day. You know I mean? It's just kind of the, the way it is. And you've got to find a way to manage that stress. And I think that's probably <clears throat> the most difficult thing about being an entrepreneur is managing and getting comfortable with uncertainty. And it's another one of our guiding principles up on the wall there is, is about that, that life is so complicated that you can only see a small part of it. But when things go wrong, take comfort in the idea that there's so much that you haven't explored that there's a solution. And I think if young entrepreneurs, I mean, it took me a long time to find some of these things that kind of made me go, oh, okay, it's gonna be all right. That and getting a, a life partner that's in it with you that at the end of the day, you walk in and you're uptight and you're worried about something. And even though they may not really know that everything's gonna be okay, find somebody that just says, it's gonna be okay. That's very helpful to an entrepreneur. If you haven't realized it yet, Bob loves to share a good story. And he shared one final story with us about his work with one of the companies we've had on the podcast in the past, Sunoco. Okay, so, so Sunoco came to us and they um, weren't very forthcoming. And most people call us and say, hey, we got a problem we want you to deal with. Sunoco called us up and said, hey, have you guys got some robots in your lab that we can use? We've never had anybody ask us to use our lab robots. And we said, sure. And they said, well, can we rent a robot and a programmer? We said, sure. And so they showed up with these bowls that they're making out of sugarcane pulp. And uh, there's some really good things about making a bowl out of sugarcane pulp is it's completely compostable, completely recyclable. And it's essentially free because you don't grow sugar cane for pulp. You grow it for sugar. And so there's all these mounds and mounds of this fiber. And so they found a way to mold it into these shapes for bowls and containers. And I think eventually we'll be making cups and glasses and bottles. I mean, it's really going to be neat. But one of the things they had to develop for these things to perform is a coating to go on them. And the coating couldn't be a really good coating. It needed to be kind of a all natural coating so that it still could be compostable and recyclable. The coating that they developed was really, really difficult to apply to get it to, to seal the bowl. And so they were throwing huge amounts of this coating at the bowl to get it to seal, which then took hours for it to dry. And so we, we um, watched as they tried numerous other methods of applying the coating in our lab here with really success, but not success, if you will, like they came in and put a paintbrush on the end of a robot. And I was like, and it was way better. I mean, the coating performed better. The amount they applied was way less, but I'm like, that's not an industrial solution to, to your problem. And so we watched this go on for two or three months and they were pretty secretive about what they were doing. And so finally one day I walked in and I was like, what is it you're doing? And so they explained to me what they wanted to do. So 
So I took a couple of long showers on it and thought about it and came up with this idea. And I can't really tell you what the idea is because it's now part of a trade secret, kind of like the Coke formula they keep reminding me. But we came up with a new method of coding the system that uh, reduced the amount of, of coding that they were putting on the system by like a factor of eight and the dry time from four hours down to two and a half minutes. And so as part of that process, we jointly patented that process with Sunoco. So it's fairly unusual for us to end up with a process patent like that. Uh, and then in addition to that, part of uh, our reward for helping invent that was we became also the sole supplier of the equipment that processes said patented process. I think it's interesting that, you know, Bob talks about this joint IP and a lot of companies feel like joint IP is taboo, but I really love the way that, um, that this project highlights how we have this smaller, nimble company partnering with this 100-year-old mm -hmm. company in South Carolina. But the really great thing about Sunoco is while they're a very large, old, established company, they have embraced innovation as well. And so you have a company here who's been able to pivot, been able to keep up with the times, by embracing innovation, they reward employees who come up with innovative ideas. They have an innovation center on site. Yeah, we were, we uh, actually last season, we interviewed Elizabeth Rue, and I think she's their global head of sustainability. We did that interview and we did it on their campus and they invited us to the hive and it was incredible. You know, they, had, they built out a, uh, basically like a, these uh, ethnographic vignettes um, which is to say they had a fake bathroom, a fake kitchen and like a fake grocer, you know, shelf, uh, area, um, to see how the packaging worked in, in those use cases. And it was just incredible. Clearly they were very, they're very sensitive to that, that design thinking innovation process that they are doing to your point. So, yeah. And uh, I mean, the other notable thing is again, in what is considered rural South Carolina. And, 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 and in this case, with what he's talking about, right, this is a huge breakthrough for, for Sunoco and for Bob, uh, this process that, that they've gone through to try to create a bowl that, that is sustainable, biodegradable, um, food safe, you know, it's checking all the boxes off and in a cornfield in That's right. South Carolina. <laughs> my name is Bob Brown, and those were my notes on innovation. Thanks for listening to Of Note. I'm Joseph Nutter. And I'm Kim Christ. This is an original production by the South Carolina Department of Commerce and Design Sensory. Our producer and editor is Hunter Foster, with additional editing support from Cody Langford. Our sound engineer is Mike Deering, with original music by Matt Honkinen. Special thanks to Robin Hendricks and Danny Netherland. Check out more interviews, our blog, and resource area at scribblesc.com. You can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at ScribbleSC. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Of Note. Innovation and failure are very paper-thin lines. You, you have to fail, you have to kind of fall. Uh, before you learn to walk and run. You have to nurture that mentality. And we kind of lose that and we get too afraid. So, of course, it's quite 
scary when you lose millions of dollars and you have failures. However, that is all part of your learning process. You've now spent that much money gaining that much knowledge and you know what doesn't work, but you've also learned why it doesn't work and how you can actually improve to make it work in the next round.